And what we've been doing for the last few months, broken by all the holidays and things that are going on, is a red letter study, which is a study of the actual words of Jesus, the words that he is speaking in the context and in the situations. And they're sometimes printed in red ink in some editions of the Bible, so therefore a red letter study. But we're trying to understand Jesus through his own words. What did he say, and what did his first hearers understand of his words? If we can get into those shoes, rather than trying to imagine Jesus' intent, if we can learn as closely as possible what those words would have meant to a first century Judean, a first century Galilean, we're going to get as close as we can to really understanding what Jesus is all about and what he's trying to get across from us. And that is life-changing as well. So last week we were talking about uh, signs and healings, and we talked about Jesus healing the leper. And more to the point, in the context of Jesus' healing, we were talking about breaking boundaries. <coughs> because all sorts of boundaries are broken in Jesus' healing stories. And it's important for us to pay attention to those. Because if we're going to really use Scripture in the way that it's intended to be used, we have to apply it to our lives right now. If there isn't a bright line connecting what you read in the text to what's going on today, the choice you're going to make as soon as you walk outside that door then we're missing the whole intent of what we're doing here. So that breaking of boundaries is what really is of issue here. Because both the leper and Jesus each break two of the social and uh, religious boundaries that, uh, that were in place at that time. The leper, first of all, first century lepers in Jewish society, they had to stay away. They had to distance and they had to mask up, all right? Let's face it, that's what they had to do. They had to keep their, their faces covered, and they had to stay away, and they had to yell out, unclean, unclean, if anyone was coming near. And this guy does the exact opposite. He hails Jesus down, and he motions him to come closer, and he approaches him, and he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean, which is breaking the second boundary. Because only the priest had the power to declare someone clean in that society. And only then could they re-enter community and re-enter society. They were outcasts, had to stay outside the walls of the city. He breaks two boundaries. And then what does Jesus do in return? He breaks two of his own. First thing he does when he sees him and gets close enough is to reach out and touch him. He's moved to compassion by the man's plight in life and what he's going through because he knows he can't be part of his family. He can't buy or sell or trade. He can't do anything. He has to stay completely separated, completely ostracized. And he reaches out and touches him. Probably the first human touch that he had felt since the inception of his disease. And remember, leprosy wasn't just Hansen's disease. Leprosy was any visible skin disease, from psoriasis to syphilis and everything in between. If you had a lesion, if you had something going on in your skin, this is your fate. This is what happened to you. Jesus reaches out and touches him. That made Jesus ritually unclean. He would have had to go to the temple and to the priest and be declared clean and go through the same cleansing process that the purity codes relegated. He reaches out and he touches him and he establishes connection. He establishes relationship. He's saying to the man, I accept you and I'm in connection with you, even before he's healed. And then, of course, he does say, yes, I am willing. And, of course, that word willing, we've talked about that so many times before. He says, Saba Ana in Aramaic. 
But sebiana, the word that is usually translated as will, as in God's will, really means desire, delight, pleasure, deepest purpose. Jesus is saying, it is my greatest desire and delight in life and my deepest purpose that you be whole, that you be well. And he breaks a second boundary because he didn't have the ritual authority to be able to declare that. Now, if everybody followed the rules as they were supposed to, there would have been no connection, there would have been no healing. But Jesus is showing the priority here, the priority in his life, the priority in his teaching, the priority in his mission, which is always connection. It's always relationship, always. Under the law, there was no acceptance, there was no restoration, there was no connection without the healing. The healing needed to take place first. The healing was the proof that a person was forgiven by God because they believed that sin created the physical malady. They believed that somebody sinned in order for this person to have a skin disease, for this person to be paralyzed or whatever was going on. And so the healing was the proof of the forgiveness and then they could go through the week-long ritual of purification to come back into community and society. So for the law, right, no acceptance, no restoration without the healing. For Jesus, the acceptance and the restoration comes without condition before the healing. It's exactly backwards. But that's what Jesus is trying to get across to us. Of course, it wasn't sin that created these diseases. He tells everybody that with the story of the blind man, the man born blind from birth. Who sinned, they asked him, that he would be born blind? Nobody. It's not about that. This is an inside-out process. It's not what goes into a person that defiles them. It's what comes out in many different ways, as many different ways as he can come up with. He's trying to get these bedrock principles across so that the people can write themselves, so that we can write ourselves and not just think we can blindly follow law somehow into the acceptance of God that we really always have. Jesus is trying to get across to us. There is never a time when you are out of connection with God. There's never a time when you're out of forgiveness with God. From God's point of view, our relationship is always perfect. Always. From our point of view, it's blowing all over the place. But that's another story. So today, we're going to have another healing story, another healing event. And it's going to follow exactly the same pattern. And not only that, this story immediately follows the story of healing the leper. And then it's going to be immediately followed by another healing story where Jesus calls Matthew, calls Levi out of his tax collector booth. So there's three of them all together right across the dividing line between Mark 1 and Mark 2. And you need to pay attention. When things are put together like that, when they're in close proximity, laying side by side in the text and scripture, when they are juxtaposed, there's a reason for that. They're meant to be understood together. Often, the two stories will define the meaning of each other or reinforce the meaning or they complete the meaning, but we need to understand them together. Just like the cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree. The cursing of the fig tree makes no sense unless you pair it together with the cleansing of the temple, and then you understand what the meaning is all about. Same thing is happening here. A meaning is being reinforced because all three of these healings that Jesus does follow the same basic pattern. And we need to spend more time considering how these breaking of boundaries, right, 
are important and essential to the message and how they affect us here and now. So let's take a look. Mark 2, starting in verse 1. And uh, John, we should probably turn off the reverb. I'm going to think I'm deep underwater in a cave or something. All right. Mark 2, starting at verse 1. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Okay, so what's the deal here? Remember at the end of the last healing story, when he healed the leper, the first thing he told them, he says, okay, tell nobody about this. Don't, don't, don't breathe a word to anybody. Just go directly to the temple and go directly to the priest and do what Moses commanded you to become clean. So what does the guy do? Exact opposite, of course. He just can't contain himself. I mean, I can kind of understand that, right? He's finally cured of this disease. He can finally connect again after who knows how long. He is just bursting at the seams. He tells everybody. And so poor Jesus is now mobbed everywhere he goes by people seeking healing and seeking his touch and his word. And so he can't even go into the cities of Galilee anymore. He has to stay out in the countryside in order to just be able to breathe. And so he's coming back to Capernaum. He's coming back. Actually, he's coming back home. A lot of time we think of Jesus as being completely itinerant, that he didn't have a home. You know, that line that he says, that the the birds of the air have their nests and the foxes have their dens, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But the truth of the matter is, he lived in Capernaum. His home was there. His family was there. And so he's coming back home. Kind of imagine maybe he snuck in at nighttime to see if he can kind of come in the back door and and just not let anybody know he's... Haven't you ever wanted to do that? I just want to go home. I don't want anyone to know I'm here. I don't want the phone to ring. I just want to be... Can kind of imagine Jesus in that sort of place. So he'd come back to Capernaum several days afterwards after healing the leper. And it was heard that he was at home and many were gathered together. He heard that he was there, though, so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. So his house is mobbed, and this is probably his home, his own home. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. So they are the four men that are carrying this man who is a paralyzed of some sort. Um, Just like leprosy being any visible skin disease, paralysis or being a paralytic was any disability that you suffered, that made you lame, made you unable to walk, you know? They all needed Joe, they needed PT, but they didn't have that back then, all right? So they're carrying him in on, a, on just a stretcher type of thing, being unable to get to Jesus because of the crowd. They removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, Your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit they were reasoning this way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. 
And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Okay. So here's what's going on. You know, after the leper, he's being mobbed. He comes back in. The people hear he's back. They crowd his house. Now the Pharisees and the scribes are in attendance in this meeting. So all the people that were crowded into the house, there was people of every strata in Galilee. Most were poor. But the Pharisees and the scribes were there. They were monitoring him. And it was interesting. There was one scholar who said, you know, isn't it kind of strange that the Pharisees and the scribes are always like popping up? You know, even in cornfields and barley fields, he said they're kind of like, you know, Broadway characters that, that pop up and they start singing a song. <laughs> he said, what is it about them? What are they doing? Well, they were following him around. They were trying to figure out what is this guy about? Because the first thing they want to know is, is he really the Mashiach? Is he really the Messiah? Now, they understood that as the one who was going to bring, you know, an army together to throw out the Romans and establish a new sovereign nation. But they were looking for this person. They were looking for him for generations. Is this really the one? Maybe. And so they're monitoring Jesus and they're trying to figure him out. But he is defying figuring in their estimation. He is not doing what they expect him to do. And they eventually kill him for that. But in the meantime, they're checking him out at every opportunity. So the scribes and the Pharisees are in attendance in the home and listening to everything that's going on. Now let me try to set the stage for you a little bit. Try to understand what a first century um, Galilean home would look like a bit. And of course, this is going to be a, you know, a real generalization, but there's going to be some features that maybe will help this story come alive a little bit. First of all, if you approached a first century Judean home or Galilean home from the street, it's not going to have a whole lot of curb appeal. Sorry to say. It's going to be first made of stone, all right? And then the stone would have some sort of plaster over it. But you would be presented pretty much with just a blank face, just a blank wall. It could be one story or two stories if the person was more wealthy. And of course, there would be a door. And if there was any window at all, it would be high up on the second floor and it would be covered with a lattice. You know what a lattice is? Kind of a cross hatched you know, strips of, of wood that leave usually square or diamond-shaped holes so you can see through and air can come through. And of course, it would be shuttered on the inside. you got to remember, there's no glass. There's no glass on the windows. But it would be very high up. And so you think, well, what's it going to be like inside? It's going to be dark. Yeah, it was dark inside. Why would they do that? Why weren't there more windows? Well, I'm sure part of it was for security, you know, of course. But part of it was also customary because the the Hebrews were so about sequestering the women, keeping them inside the home, keeping them unseen, so that they could go about their business with their, you know, their shawls off, the veils off, and they couldn't be seen from the street. And so part of it was cultural, part of it was practical, but, um, but just a blank wall, pretty much. When you go in the front door, certain homes, if they were large enough and wealthy enough, would have a porch that was also inside, of course. And it would run the, the width of the house, and it would be so many feet deep. And it was just kind of an anteroom that you could go into when you came off the street. It was a place where the water cisterns would be so you could wash your feet, and it was a place where the, the man of the house, the, the patriarch, could do business with uh, people that he needed to do. Um, but this was like an anteroom that you would go into, a foyer, if you will. And then you'd go through a second door, and that would lead into an open courtyard, a central courtyard for the house. And that was open to the sky. 
All right, so you walk in this central courtyard, and if it, depending on again on the house, if it was uh, wealthy enough, there would be a balustrade or columns that would go around the perimeter of it and a covered walkway around that on the sides. And if it was two stories, that would go all the way up two stories. And then when you move further into the house, there wouldn't ever be a kitchen the way we think of a kitchen, because the cooking was done primarily outside or in the courtyard. But there was you sometimes a domed sort of oven that was used for inclement weather. If it was raining outside, you could at least cook something inside. But there really wasn't a kitchen the way that we think of a central kitchen. And then as you move through the courtyard and go through the, 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 the farther door, you probably walk into the dining area. And of course, furniture is really sparse and really simple. There really wasn't much furniture at all. The dining area, if, uh, if they were wealthy enough again, they would uh, be a low table, usually horseshoe-shaped, and everybody reclined. They didn't sit up at the table. They laid down on their left side, kind of radiating out like spokes on a wheel from that horseshoe-shaped table, and the serving would occur on the inside. And everything was just finger food, so you just eat with your right hand. If people were very poor, it was just basically one room. One room with a dirt floor, and one side of, the, of the, that floor would have a platform, a raised platform, that in Greek is the katalyma, or the shira in, in uh, Aramaic, and that was just the living space. That's where they actually lived. The dirt area was where the cooking took place, and where the, remember, the animals are in there too. So this takes us back to Bethlehem and Jesus' birth. There was no room for Jesus and his family, or the family, to give birth in the living space. There was no inn, so to speak, but that living area, which in the poorhouse would have just been that raised platform open to the rest of the room. If they had more money, then hopefully there was a second floor. The second floor is where the living spaces were, but there were no beds, not the way we think of beds. They would just roll out a mat and they would sleep on the floor. And if it was warm enough, they'd sleep on the roof, which was really nice because the roof became a huge living area for everyone, both on the sides around the central courtyard and back over the dining area and the living space on the second floor. It was all flat. The roofs were always flat. And they would have a raised, um, what would you call it, guardrail area around it so you wouldn't just be able to fall off. And the roofs, the only part that was made out of wood were the timbers that were used to support the roof. And then over that was placed matting and other types of materials. And then over that was placed either, if, the, if it was a poor house, just earth that was packed down, or, if you had a little more money, there was a concoction that they made of gypsum and ash and coal and, uh, and maybe even clay that was packed down. Think about a clay tennis court. It was like that, packed down so that it was hard. And when the rain fell on it, 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 it uh, sealed it and sealed it for the, for the water. So this is the roof area. And there was an internal stairway that went up to the roof, or maybe a couple of them, depending on the size of the house. And there was usually one on the outside that also went up to the roof. So now that you have kind of an idea what the house looked like, think about all the people that went in there. So that porch area was packed out. The courtyard was packed out. The dining area is probably packed out. Unclear where Jesus was. Seems like the most logical place, place for him to be as he was speaking to the people would be in the courtyard. But that's an open area. There is no roof there. So was he over in the dining area at the back, area, back part of the house underneath the roof? But then that would be under a second floor. You see where the problem is? We're trying to recreate what the heck was going on here. 
Some scholars also mentioned that in that open courtyard, there was often an awning. And you've probably seen these at restaurants where they, they have cables that run across and then you can pull kind of a sail-like or awning thing across when it's really hot and the sun is beating down. Some of these houses had those awnings that would be pulled across the entire width of the courtyard to keep the, the shade there and keep it cool. So some scholars believe that Jesus was teaching from the courtyard. And what these four men did with their friend was actually either retract the awning or cut through it and drop him down through the awning. Now that's not as dramatic, you know, as the, other one, as the other story. But the other thing is, it could have been a one-story house and Jesus was in the back or on the sides or somewhere under a roof and they actually dug through the roof itself, which would have caused a lot of damage, you know. So if you look at the picture in your handouts, that's all wrong. That is not from the period. It's not even from the continent. I just did that because it was a cool picture of a hole in the roof. But that's a pitched roof, and it's all wrong. So just know that. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about except that there's a hole in the roof. So what do these guys do? We don't really know. But that kind of sets the stage for you to know what is going on here. When these four men lower the man down, it's either through the awning or through the roof itself. And here's some observations that we can take a look at as we think about this story. The first thing is these four men show up carrying their friend, the fifth, and they never speak. There is no record of them saying a word to Jesus. And they certainly don't make a request of Jesus. The leper did. If you're willing, you can make me clean. They don't even speak a word. When Jesus calls Levi, he doesn't have a chance to get a word out. Jesus calls him unilaterally. You know, come, follow me. He can't get out of the booth fast enough. But they don't ask. They make no request. But their action, what they did, right? Breaking that boundary, going through whatever that covering was, whether it was the awning or the roof, makes their intent and makes their request pretty clear all of the effort that they put through, the work that they put through to get their friend to Jesus. And the roof itself is a literal boundary that they broke through in order to get them. So Jesus is acting unilaterally here. He is answering the point of need without them having to ask for anything. But what need is he acting on? And is it one that these four men or these five men would actually recognize? He sees their faith. But whose faith does he see? Is it the four men's faith that are carrying their friend and doing all of this work to get him down in front of Jesus, all that effort, the action, the perseverance that they went through? Or is it the paralytic's faith that he sees? But we don't know much about the paralytic, do we? He's kind of a passive character. He's just along for the ride as far as we know. Remember the prodigal son? When the prodigal son comes to his senses, when he is uh, living with the pigs, you know, it's one of enlightened self-interest. He says, yeah, my, my dad's servants live better than this. I'm just going to go back and ask to be a servant. We don't really know, has there been a change of heart? Or is he just hungry and is looking for a better life? Is it just enlightened self-interest? What's going on in the paralytic's heart? We don't really know at this point. But Jesus breaks the boundary anyway. And the first thing he says is, son, your sins are forgiven. Now that might have confused the guys, especially that were carrying him, because that's not really what they were looking for, right? Apparently. Were they disappointed? Did they feel ripped off? I mean, is this all we're really going to get? You know, what's going on here? 
And of course, the scribes react in a different way. They're judging him because he is blaspheming. He is working against their theology. He's working against their doctrine. He's working against what they believe about the way things that are. Only God can forgive sins. But notice this. Jesus doesn't actually say, I forgive you, or I forgive your sins. He's basically declaring the man's state. Your sins are already forgiven. You're as free as you want to be. Jesus declares this forgiveness before there's any healing, just like the touch he gave the leper before there was any healing. He breaks that boundary. And since the Jews believed that any disability was a result of sin, the healing had to be first, right? Because the healing was the proof that forgiveness had taken place. The healing was the proof that the sins were forgiven. But with Jesus, there is full acceptance. He calls him son before the healing without any condition. And for Jesus, the healing or the acceptance had to be first because that was a proof of love. The Pharisees legalistically were looking for the proof of forgiveness. Jesus, just because of the innate relationship and connection he had with everyone, realizes that acceptance is the proof of love. He calls him son. Now in Greek, the word is technon. In Aramaic, it's bar, which means son. But it also is kind of loosely defined. You know, familiar relationships, there was only son and daughter. There was nothing for cousins or any other relationship, nieces and nephews. It was just son and daughter, just bar and bat. That's all you have. And so it can mean a lot of different things. It can just mean child. But the thing is, what it also can mean is just a real term of endearment, just a term of affection, a term of relationship, a term of acceptance. You are my family. You are connected to me. It can also mean that you are my heir. You are the one who is going to receive everything that I have. And so all of this is contained in this one word, son, child. You're connected to me. You are family to me. So this declaration comes after He has just basically wrapped his arms around this man and accepted him as his own. Same word that he would have used to describe any of his followers. You have to wonder, were were his followers kind of taken aback that he would call this man the same word that he calls them after they had been following him so closely for so much time? Hard to say. But Jesus doesn't make those kinds of distinctions. God's love doesn't make those kinds of distinctions. The sun and the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, right? There are points being made here all along, just by the words that are being using. And maybe this declaration of forgiveness was really more for the scribes and the Pharisees' sake than even for the man himself or for anyone else in the room. Kind of a teaching moment, if you think about it. Because they're assuming that there is sin here. They're assuming that there's something wrong. And Jesus is just pulling him in, fully connected. Remember the man that was healed at the uh, the pool at Bethesda? Bethesda? He's the one who was, when Jesus says, hey, are you willing? Same word. Is it your deepest desire? Is it your deepest purpose and delight to be whole? And the man can't even say yes. He starts giving the excuses why he doesn't have anyone to help him into the water when it gets stirred up, and so on and so forth. 
He doesn't have family. He doesn't have connection. He doesn't have community. He's isolated. He's got a victim mentality, right? He is stuck in that place. He's the one that Jesus says at the end of it all, when he, after he heals him, go and sin no more. Quit doing the things that are going to bring you right back to this place or a worse place than this. It doesn't say that to the blind man. It doesn't say it to the paralytic. It doesn't say that to the leper either. But this paralytic has four really good friends. I mean, don't you wish you had friends that good that would do what they're doing for you, tear a hole in someone's roof to get you to the place you need to be at the moment you need to be there? He's got community. He's got friends. And he wouldn't have those friends if he wasn't a friend. He's got connection. Jesus sees that. Just like the blind man, the man born blind from birth, he has his family, he has his connections around him as well. There's no sin here, Jesus is saying. So Jesus sees that love and that connection and that trust in this man's life and the people around him. He sees their faith, their action, their willingness to move on the things that they believe. And he realizes they are not in a sinful state. And sin is not just unlawfulness here. That's not biblical sin, not just breaking the law. Sin is a state of separation. So those actions that cause separation and broken relationships are sinful. Those that create more connection are righteous, not just because they're lawful or unlawful. Jesus is always looking toward the result, the effect of what our actions create. And so he says, which is easier? Ah, great question. <laughs> Rhetorical, of course. Which is easier? Me just to say your sins are forgiven or to pick up your pallet and walk? Now, just on the face of it, answering that question, it seems like the forgiveness is easier, right? Because there's not going to be any visible proof that's possible. Your sins are forgiven. How am I going to know that? The person may feel a lifting, but there's no visible proof. Not only that, the scribes only accepted healing as the proof. And Jesus isn't offering that. He's just stating what is true, stating what he sees of the relationship here. And the healing that he does, it's kind of completed almost as an afterthought, isn't it? He's like done. Son, we're connected. We're family. Your sins are forgiven. Everything is all right. See you later. Let's have lunch. He's done. But then as an afterthought almost, here is this healing, this restoration that is absolutely essential because if he isn't healed, he still can't come back into the fullness of community that he would be able to if his body was whole. And he wouldn't be accepted by the religious authorities as being forgiven because there was no proof of his healing. And so Jesus does that. In Jewish society, he knows physical healing is necessary for that full restoration for community. But he knows also that it's the interior healing, the interior reconnection, the realization of connection that is what really matters. And if you think about it from Jesus' point of view, the forgiveness is the healing. There really wasn't anything further necessary just to return to the place before 
you were perpetrated upon, to return to the place before you got ill, to return to the place before the accident. That's what forgiveness literally means. It's to reset, to have everything back in equilibrium the way it was before whatever happened. And that interior healing, that interior forgiveness is what Jesus is after with every single one of us. And again, the only way this occurs is by breaking boundaries. None of this happens. None of this story happens. None of any of these three healing stories happens if everybody plays by the rules as they understand them. There has to be the breaking of boundaries for the connection to happen that leads to the acceptance and leads to the healing and leads to the restoration. And so without extending beyond the safety of our legal and social, religious, even personal limitations, there is no growth. We have to be willing to push beyond the pale, beyond where we think we're supposed to be if we really want to experience the the growth. We have to break these boundaries ourselves. We have to get off the shore. Remember Jesus teaching from the boat, there are some who stay safely on the shore, and then he tells Peter and the fishermen to pull it, put out to deeper water to get that miraculous catch of fish, to finally break through and have that epiphany, have that clarity, that moment of understanding what this is all about. But there's risk out there on the water. Are we willing to break the boundaries? Are we willing to get out into the place of risk, get out into the deeper water to see what's going on out there? And think about those guys, about the right stuff. Remember, wasn't there a movie called The Right... Was that The Right Stuff? It was about the uh, seven astronauts and about the, uh, the test pilots that, that piloted in the 50s and the 60s, all those crazy planes, and they were breaking sound barrier after sound barrier after sound barrier and going up higher and higher and finally into low orbit... Those guys were risking everything, and a lot of them paid the price. But without that continual breaking of this envelope and that envelope and the next limit and the next barrier and the next boundary, none of the space exploration that we understand would have taken place. Those guys had an ethic and had a a, a bravery and probably a craziness that we can only imagine. But interiorly, it's the same process for us. Are we willing to push past what we think we know? Are we willing to break the rules as we understand them? Are we willing to push out into risk? God is always calling us beyond the latest limit that we have set upon ourselves or the latest limit that we have learned from everyone around us. Life does the same thing. It doesn't just have to be God. The latest loss that you have suffered, the loss that Marion was talking about, with our family. That is going to create a journey for all of them. They're going to have to redefine what they thought they understood about their faith that was comfortable before. But does it, is it large enough? Is it strong enough to incorporate this kind of pain, this kind of loss, this kind of trauma? Life will do that serially, over and over and call us to push those limits again and again and again. Now, I don't want you to, at the same time to get the wrong idea here. I don't mean that you're going to have to sell your house. I don't mean that you have to move to Africa. <laughs> okay? You don't even have to go out and feed the homeless if you don't want to right now. You know? We don't need to go looking for physical boundaries to break in order to break through into the kind of connection that Jesus is talking about. Because he's talking about interior 
boundaries. He's talking about the state of our heart, of course. Is your heart such that you are willing? Is it your semyana? Is it your deepest purpose, your heart's deepest purpose, to find the kind of connection that is always on the other side of the latest boundary that you have set for yourself or someone else has set for you? Jesus is talking about breaking interior boundaries. He's talking about breaking those self-imposed and learned fears and biases and certainties that we think we understand. And when those interior boundaries start to fall, when we become willing to let them go, the exterior boundaries are going to fall as well. And when they do, they will make us capable of compassion and connection that just wasn't possible before. We will find what we are going to do with our newfound faith as we are increasingly understand it as we move from the inside out. We don't go outside to try to prove our faith. That's not what James is talking about when he says faith without works is dead. But what he is saying is that if you really are connected in this way, then you can't help doing something. doesn't mean you have to sell your house, though, okay? So we can move a lot more practically in this. But something is going to cross our paths. Something is going to change. You know, many years ago here, it was on the other side when we had the other suite over there, we have a policy here at the effect that anybody can be present as long as they can maintain themselves and allow everyone else to have the experience that that they're trying to have. And over the course of 16 years now, there's only two people that we've had to ask to leave, you know. And one of them was a woman who was homeless and she was an addict and she would come in here high sometimes, which was okay with us as long as she could maintain. Where else would we want her to be? Come and have some coffee, have a donut. But there were times when she was really off, and this was one of those times on a Sunday morning, and uh, she was acting out, and she was screaming profanities and doing what she was doing, and so we had to ask her to leave. At the end of the service, she came back, and she made a beeline for me. And so everything in me is like, oh, gosh, now what? what what's going to happen now? Where is this going to go? What's, but, you know, I, I just stood my ground, and she came up to me, and she's standing in front of me, and she's talking, and, and uh, I'm you know, just waiting for the shoe to drop and to see what she's going to do. And I'm feeling that tension, you know. I'm feeling my boundary. I'm I'm, I'm ready to be very defended here, right? And then she finally at one point says, you know, I I, I just want a hug. Okay. All right. So give her a hug. You know, and you you know know how the hugs go. You give a hug and and after, I don't know, three, four seconds, you relax and you're ready to step away. She's not letting go. And she says in my ear, her, her head is right here, she says in my ear, you know, hugs are hard to come by. And so I'm, all right. So I just re-engage and I'm hanging on. And then after a few more seconds, I let go and she's not ready. And I said, okay. I felt at that moment, I remember just kind of everything just falling out and I just grabbed on and I hung on until she finally relaxed her grip. But at that point, all the tension was gone. I was fine. I had broken through a boundary that was very pronounced, very emotional at that moment. And I could just be with her. I could relax with her. It's an inside-out process. I couldn't have done that any other way. I couldn't have just willed myself. Maybe I could have willed myself to stay in an embrace that was that long, but I wouldn't have felt what I felt. 
It was an inside out. The kingdom always moves in that direction from inside out. At the point that we can start to see the other as one with us, that's when the boundaries really completely break. There's a great scene in the movie Gandhi. Y'all have seen, have you all seen the movie Gandhi? Haven't seen the movie Gandhi? Okay. It's a long one. Great movie from the, I don't know, that's the 80s. Ben Kingsley as Gandhi, his signature performance. But there is one scene toward the end of the movie that sticks out. Gandhi was all about um, leading his country, India, out of the, the rule of Britain. Okay, he was all about um, Indian independence, and so he works for that. But he works for it from his own nonviolent point of view, and everything he does is nonviolent. And when they finally get to the point where the British are leaving, and there should be a celebration, and their country is finally free, that's when all heck breaks loose, and the Muslims and the Hindus start fighting each other in the streets. It's not exactly a civil war, but it's getting really close. Ultimately, what happened is they never could come together. And so that was the creation of Pakistan. The Muslims took the northern territories and created their own country, and then the subcontinent stayed largely Hindu. But here's Gandhi just so just distraught and traumatized to see his people acting out this way, killing each other in the streets and the bloodshed and what's going on. And so he says, okay, I'm going on, on a hunger strike, and I am not going to eat anything again until this resolves in some way. And so he's not eating, he's getting weaker and weaker, he's at the point of death, and that word is getting out, and he's their national figure, so slowly the violence starts to calm down, calm down, and a stream of people are coming to him, please eat, please eat, it's getting better and better. He says, but is there still violence? Yes, and so he won't accept it. And finally, a, a Hindu man comes to him and throws a piece of bread on his chest, and he says, you eat that. He says, I'm already going to hell but I'm not going to go to hell having your death on my conscience as well. And Gandhi says, well, why are you going to hell? He says, because I killed the child. Well, why did you do that? He said, because they killed my child. And so I found a Muslim child and I smashed his head against a wall. And Gandhi says to him, I know a way out of hell. What's that? is you go find a child whose parents have been killed and you raise him as your own, but you make sure that he is a Muslim child and you raise him as a Muslim. Man's face, right? That's the way out of hell. That extreme prejudice broken down by allowing yourself to live with and nurture and connect with someone who you thought it was impossible for you to do so, that brings you through your own trauma, brings you through everything that you're feeling at the time. This is what Jesus is all about. He's accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. Why? Because he hung out with them. Imagine you uh, walking by a bar, you know, looking in and you see me in there big old cigar and smoking. I got a martini in front of me and I'm with obviously some real, you know, questionable folks, a couple of hookers and, uh, you know, whatever you can think of as being an objection. What would you really think of me at that point, huh? Come on, be honest. Wouldn't be too favorable now, would it? What did Jesus say? He said, it's the sick who need the physician. 
Of course I'm going to be here. Where else am I going to be? I'm going to hang out with them. And I'm going to eat with them. Why? Because in that society, especially to eat together with a person was to create a pact with them, to be one with them. This is what Jesus is doing. And we would look at him the same way. It's what we do. We haven't broken through the same kind of boundaries that Jesus has broken through to be able to see the beauty in that. So this was Jesus' custom. It's what he did. What boundaries do we need to be breaking in order to be able to move where Jesus is trying to take us? Now, only we can answer that for ourselves. Nobody can answer it for us. But notice for yourself, when do you feel disgust? When do you feel anger or resentment or outrage? When do you feel stress or anxiety or fear? With whom do you feel it? Why do you feel it? What are you afraid of? Who told you you were naked? Remember in the Garden of Eden? Who told you what to fear that you believed and learned so well that it is now ordering the way that you process life, ordering the quality of your relationships? Now, obviously some fear is legit, right? (laughs) And there are some physical risks that shouldn't be taken, and there are some people who are way too toxic to be in relationship with. We need to respect that and set boundaries and maintain boundaries with people like that. But for all the rest, lean into all the rest. Hug the rest until you feel that boundary break inside. And then keep extending and pushing the limits like that over and over, like that test pilot, until you break through the next barrier and the one after that until literally you realize you are set free. You are set free of those limitations and you can now connect fully and truthfully with that feeling of celebration that this really is your brother and sister that you never could have imagined before. This is where Jesus is trying to take us. This is where these stories of healing are trying to take us and that's what the healing really means however else we might like to place it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for breaking boundaries with us. We always pray that we only love because you loved us first. You broke the boundary first. You loved us first, no matter what. It's up to us to scamper after and find a way to be able to love more and more the way you do. Help us. Help us to do that. Help us to become more aware, to recognize the limitations that we place on ourselves. And help us to become more and more willing to push against them until we finally feel them fall. And we realize we have more relationships than we ever thought possible. That's what we're looking for, Father. Thank you for taking us where we need to go, even before we recognize it. And help us to realize that as far as we think we've gone, the path is infinite with you. And the radical change and the radical connection and acceptance we can't even imagine. So thank you for your love and your constancy, Lord. And never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.